Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have an interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today is a very special episode on Healthcare Unfiltered. I am hosting Dr. Alex Herrera from the City of Hope, Associate Professor of Medicine and a lymphoma guru, Director of Lymphoma at the City of Hope on Healthcare Unfiltered. I am taping this episode on June 6, 2023, the last day of the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting. And Alex had uh, was on the plenary session, was on the plenary uh, um at ASCO presenting groundbreaking data that is transforming how we treat advanced Hodgkin lymphoma. But before he became a scientist and a physician and a researcher, he has always been an amazing human being and an inspiration to all of us. Uh, his career journey was featured at the ASCO post in December, 2022. There's a link for that in today's podcast that you can actually check out. I've asked Alex to come on the show, not to talk a lot about science, but to talk about his upbringing, his childhood. How did he decide to become a doctor and a lymphoma specialist and an oncologist? Something happened in Alex's life in 2019 that transformed and probably pivoted a lot of things that he did afterwards. And you'll have to listen to the show to even know what actually happened. I'm very grateful to Dr. Alex Herrera to come on Healthcare Unfiltered. As I will, as you will hear, and as I told him on the show, while I am older than him, he inspires me every day. And I am very happy that he has presented at the ASCO plenary session uh, in Chicago this week. So before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. Alex Herrera, I have to plug the show and ask you to find Healthcare Unfiltered anywhere you find podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate it, and write a brief review. Refer your friends and colleagues to the show and let them know about Healthcare Unfiltered because if they subscribe to it, we others will be able to find this podcast. Visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com, and check out my book, Toxic Exposure, The True Story Behind the Monsanto Trials and the Search for Justice. Without further ado, the leader, the inspiration, the man, the legend, the scientist, the researcher, the human being, Dr. Alex Herrera on Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, Alex, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. Really appreciate you taking time. I know how busy you are and um, how long it took to schedule this. So I, I owe you a lot, but I'm pretty sure that your listen, my listeners are will be very appreciative of your time. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. I'm I'm really appreciative and and excited to to chat with you and and uh, you know looking really looking forward to it. It's a tremendous opportunity that I had and. You know, I, I'm I'm grateful for it and, and happy to happy to share, you know, happy to share about the experience. This is, uh, you know, uh, 
Alex Herrera unplugged. You know, that's why part of that's probably that, that's probably a better better one, right? You know, I don't know about that. Yeah, yeah. And and by the way, we have to do this uh, mandatory picture right here. Okay, look in the camera right here. There you go, right here. The nice thing about my podcast, Alex, it's completely unfiltered. Like you literally can say anything you want. I'm not kidding. Like that, that's, no, that might be problematic with me. You know, no, no, it's totally fine. In fact, when I was when I was in eighth grade. I won, you know, they have these superlatives when you're graduating from high school or middle, middle school. I won the foot in the mouth award in eighth grade. So just be careful about it, unfiltered. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I'll get more clicks. <laughs> um, I, I've known you for a long time through the lymphoma world, but uh, uh, probably not everybody who is listening or watching does. Tell us a little about your upbringing and um, how did you decide to become an oncologist? How much time do you have? Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, so I grew up in Miami. Um, I'm of uh, Cuban descent. Uh, my mom uh, came uh, to the United States from Cuba when she was um, eight years old. Uh, her, the, the men, you know, her dad and, and uncles and uh, were all kind of political prisoners after the, the Cuban revolution. And uh, so they, you know, she kind of left with her siblings and, and um, actually got separated from her, my grandmother, her mom. Um, so she was a, you know, basically in foster homes growing up in Miami. You know, ultimately she they she met my dad in high school. Uh, my dad, my dad's my from Puerto Rico. He was born in Puerto Rico. His mom's from Ecuador. My my, my grandfather on on my dad's side uh, is Cuban. Awesome. Uh, so they met in high school, and um, I might have been a prom baby. They were, I was born when they were 19 in, in February of when they were 19. So if you go nine months back, it kind of works out. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, so, yeah, so my parents were really young and uh, my mom, you know, worked as a cocktail waitress. My dad was a car salesman. Um, and uh, yeah, I grew up in a house of, you know, where they were they were learning how to become adults, too. And uh, that was that was complicated at, at times. Um, you know, my dad was. You know, he had, uh, you know, he was alcohol, you know, problems with substances and alcohol and things like that. Um, you know, he's all, you know, recovered from all of that now. But uh, it was a, it was at times a, you know, a, a colorful upbringing. But um, I, uh, growing up in Miami as a Cuban, uh, Cuban uh, boy, I played a lot of baseball growing up and really dedicated myself to sports. Um, and you know, kind of that was a haven for me. And ultimately, um, you know, my my parents divorced. Uh, my dad moved actually back to Puerto Rico, and my mom raised uh, my sister and I as a single mom uh, for most of the rest of our. You know, I think my parents divorced when I was ten, uh, and so uh, that was that was. You know, I, I'm thankful to her for for all the opportunity that she gave us by you know making sure we you know stayed in school, were fed, had activities, doing all the you know kind of. We're able to to kind of keep keep going through. Um, she actually got diagnosed with bipolar disorder as I was going to college, um, which was explained a lot probably about uh, things that I was dealing with when I was growing up, but um, but also was tough in and of itself. But uh, anyways, I uh, how how difficult was it for you to focus on your school? You're just like you know, although obviously you're still in high school, you know, academics. You have a divorced parents, and um, yeah. um, I mean, how difficult was that? You know, I, I, I was really, I, I mean, I'm talking, I mean, this is like the, the Cliff Notes version of, of my childhood, which, you know, obviously there was a lot there, but 
to be honest with you, I really consider myself lucky. I had a lot of family members, including my mom and dad, actually, who who loved me very much. And I we didn't have a lot. Um, and, and there was a lot of there were a lot of things going on in life that presented challenges. But what I did have a lot of was love uh, and attention. Uh, and everybody really um, kind of I, I always felt very cared for, like people promoted my you know, they were really supportive of me. And so, you know, they supported what, you know, sports that I was interested in, um, you know, they, they recognized that, you know, I, I liked school and, and so they, they wanted, you know, they understood that that was a priority. So I think even though life was a bit hectic and that's hard to focus on things, uh, I did feel loved and didn't always feel that chaos around me. Um, you know, I was able to sometimes shelter myself from that. So that was fortunate. Um, it took me a while to really, truly, I mean, I, I did, I did well in school, but I didn't, I would, I mean, I didn't really fully apply myself, I would say, until I got to high school. And, uh, you know, I kind of got by a lot of the time when I was younger, because so much else was going on in my life. And I didn't have time to do homework all the time and things like that, because, you know, a little bit of that chaos. But, um, you know, at some point, it clicked. And I, I, changed, I actually went, I was not doing great at the public in the public school system, I went to private school. Um, and actually it was something really interesting. They, they, they gave my first report card. They put your class rank on it. Kind of an interesting thing. Like they gave you a running tally of your class rank. And it turns out, I guess I'm a pretty competitive person. Cause I saw that and I was like, Oh, I have to be, I have to do better than that. <laughs> and so from that point on, I never, I, I got straight A's after that. Always after never having gotten straight A's, I never got straight A's my entire life. Um, but after that, I really, it was like something clicked and I applied myself. And once I applied myself, I realized, I mean, I, I had always loved learning. Um, but then I, one of my, my, my uncle who I was really close to, he saw that, you know, there was, I guess that I had, there was potential for more. He actually took me on a trip when I was in college to go visit colleges, you know, up in the Northeast and go to Ivy, you know, Ivy League schools and things like that, which, I mean, I was content to, to I figured I would go to college, but I, you know, I was, I was excited about going to state school and, and which was great state schools in Florida. Um, and, and when I saw, you know, when, when I had my eyes open to what was possible, I kind of saw it as a ticket to a new, a different life and a different, you know, that I had known um, and opportunities that I hadn't had before. And I, you know, so that all coincided with me really starting to apply myself. Um, so anyways, to make a long story short, I decided to apply for schools up in the, you know, in the Northeast, Ivy League schools all around the country. And my guidance counselor in high school was like, I told him, I'm going to apply early decision to Princeton. I don't even know if they have early decision anymore. The college application process is completely different. <laughs> but uh, tell, tell I said, me about it. I have two going to college in two years and I'm petrified. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a really changed. But I said, I'm going to apply early decision to Princeton. And he looked at me straight faced and said, I don't know why you would do that. We haven't had anybody go to that school here for 40 years and let alone rarely ever go to an Ivy League school. So I think you should readjust your expectations. And I, <laughs> I, I was, I walked out of the office and I was kind of, you know, I, I was hurt. Um, but I decided, you know, I said, you know what, I, I really, uh, I want to go for this. And if it doesn't happen, that's okay. But I, I, I ultimately, I did apply and I did get in. Um, and so I went to Princeton, met my did wife. You go, did you go back and tell him, Hey, <laughs> Well, after after I got in, he was very oh, I'm so proud of you. I knew you would get in. Like that's of course, that's oh, of course he knew. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. 
So I uh, went to Princeton, met my wife, uh, you know, uh, early in my, my uh, you know, beginning of freshman year. Um, and, uh, by that point I was really, you know, I was more focused. I was applying myself. I knew I was, I was, but as an immigrant, you know, I, it's like my family was like, you can either be a lawyer, a doctor or a businessman. And so I started off as an econ major taking pre-med classes. I said, law's probably not for me. Um, so I, I, I was keeping all doors open. Um, but I, I pretty quickly, I realized how, that I, I really enjoyed, um, my pre-med requirements. I started doing experiences like shadowing in clinics. I was actually an interpreter for the at Princeton Medical Center. And, um, you know, there's actually a, a reasonable sized Latino population um, in central New Jersey. And so I got to be uh, actually really, it was really a special experience to, to understand how, you know, how, what, how important language was in, you know, in, in for, for people when they're communicating their medical issues, like how special it was that I spoke their language, I understood culturally, you know, a lot about what they were going through and, and their culture. And so I could communicate that with the, with the, with the you know, the medical team. And um, so I, I had a really interesting kind of view into health equity early on. But, uh, I, you know, I, I loved all my experiences as, as a pre-med and all these different kind of medical experiences that I had. Very, so, you know, I knew I wanted to do medicine um, and I applied for, you know, when I was applying for medical school, I, um, it was, I almost had the identical experience. I went to the pre-med advising office. I'll never forget this person. Um, I won't say her name, um, but I, I went into the office to meet with them and I said, here's the list of schools I want to apply to and, and, you know, the different tiers and all, you know, the whole thing that we all have to go through when you're applying for medical school. And when I showed her the list of schools and I wanted to apply to Harvard Medical School, among others. She's like, you know, I, I think you need to readjust your expectations. I just don't, you know, I'm not thinking that, you know, I think this list, you probably need to kind of go down. This is probably more where you're at. And she kind of goes to this like other, you know, just, you know, different different tier than I was kind of, of schools that I was interested in applying to. And, um, and that, you know, again, that it, similarly, I was, I was pretty, you know, I was surprised or just disappointed. Um, she actually even made the comment that like, well, but you're, you're a minority, right? You're, you're Hispanic. And I was like, I am. And she's like, oh, you might be okay. Which was like, oh, I couldn't, how, you know, to say, to say these things sometimes, you know, but anyway. But um, so, so, so she, she did not want to admit it was based on merit or based on. Right. Right. I mean, this is, this is like, I mean, I got A's and orgo, like whatever, like it was such an absurd comment that she was making, but I said, okay, you know what, that's, I appreciate your, I said, listen, would, would you support my application if I, if I apply? And she said, you know, look, we'll, we'll write your, you know, we'll write your, your letters and, you know, we'll, we'll support your applications wherever you want to apply. And I, you know, and I got in, actually, I got into, you know, of course, I applied to 20 medical schools, and I was worried, she had me all worried that I wasn't going to get in. So I applied to, you know, many, many medical, medical schools. And, you know, I, I got into many medical schools. So, you know, again, I, I just think resilience and building resilience, I think is, is important in, in medicine and in, and in academic medicine, especially. Um, but I guess I had some early hard knocks about learning <laughs> how to be resilient uh, for many reasons, right? Based on my childhood and, and maybe, you know, people not believing in me. Um, so so, so for, view, for viewers and listeners, which medical school did you go to just so they know? Oh, so I went, I went, to, so I went to Harvard Medical School. Um, well, I've, then, never, I've never heard of that. I don't know. Yeah. I Google this one. <laughs> it's a... Uh, this somewhere, place in Boston. somewhere in Boston. Somewhere yeah, in this Boston. place, this place in Boston. Um, but yeah, so then I, I went to, to HMS 
I had a great experience there. I did my residency at the Brigham, uh, Brigham Women's Hospital. I was paired, you know, I, it's interesting. Like I, I always, I had developed an interest in, in, in oncology and cancer medicine. So why, what, why, what happened that made you? Yeah, that's, I guess that's a good question. So I am um, before, between college and medical school, I spent a year doing breast cancer research in San Francisco at UCSF, um, at the breast care center. I worked with a really dynamic uh, breast surgeon. Her name was Laura Esserman. Among and 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 the whole team, the whole breast cancer team there is phenomenal. Um, Hope Rugo is part of that team. Um, and so I, I had a really fantastic experience. It was I was doing clinical research. Uh, we were looking at biomarkers of breast cancer and DCIS, and looking at MRIs and looking at the pathology. And I I just I said this is the coolest to be able to. Um, you know, if she was, Laura Esmer was one of the first people to think about kind of tailoring therapy based on targets and breast cancer and how to do that. It was really exciting. Um, so I fell in love with oncology through that experience. During medical school, I, I, I actually kind of continued to build on that. I had a, as a third year medical student, um, you know, I was, I was, I was kind of loved my, I mean, felt, I was absolutely so excited like I remember in biochem, uh, like in these first, in our medical school courses, the first two years and all the basic science courses, I remember in biochem, uh, actually it was Jeff Engelman, I think was presenting on EGFR and oncogene addiction. And and I, I just, I'd never gone into, I'd never been in a lecture uh, before and, and, and at, a, at school or in college and, and heard something like that. And just like, I just walked straight up to, I never walked up to the, to a professor afterwards. And I just, I started asking him questions. I was like, I want to, I want to go work in your lab. I want to, you know, I was so excited. Um, something about it just clicked. Uh, as a third year medical student, I did this longitudinal experience for, for students who are interested in HEMOG, where you get paired with a patient with a diagnosis early on in the beginning of your year, and you follow them throughout the course of their diagnosis throughout the year. This was a woman with ovarian cancer. And she was, uh, you know, we, we hit it off. She was, we were, we were just lucky. We ended up, you know, kind of being very, you know, I had similar senses of humor. I would go to, I actually scrubbed it on her surgery. I went, I went to her chemotherapy infusion. You know, she got into peritoneal chemotherapy, uh, you know, and I, 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 I went to all her appointments. We actually did a home visit to take out the staples after her surgery. And I got to meet her family. Um, you know, they baked us cookies. It was just like, this yeah, that's actually a pretty cool program. That is, um, I'm, I'm not aware of a lot of schools doing that. That's really cool. It was spectacular just to, it, the appreciation that I gained for the longitudinal experience of a cancer patient uh, and what role the provider can play in that um, was, I, I mean, I think that that was probably the thing that clinched my interest in, in oncology, that, that, that bond and that the intensity of that relationship. It's this intensity based on obviously this, this hugely traumatic and, you know, life-threatening thing that somebody's going through they're facing their mortality and you're guiding them through that but you're also you know so they're putting it's just the trust that you build in that relationship um that i felt like i was able to do um that that came naturally i thought was really special I, you know it's like sometimes in life things click like you just realize something something fits so you can do something and, and it feels fulfilling and it's exciting and i i loved it i thought that was just i mean it was it was it was a really special experience. So that that kind of clinched my interest in, in HEMOG. I dabbled a little bit in infectious diseases. I lived in Africa for a year doing HIV and TB research because I was also interested in global health. Um, but ultimately, I realized that, you know, to do that 
to do that job, you, pro- you really need to travel a lot. And you need to be in country a lot. And I, I said, you know what, I really want, I envisioned my life as having an outpatient, you know, practice and hemonic practice ultimately in, in the United States and having a family. So, so that I, you know, I, I kind of very quickly came back to hemonic. In fact, every time I would talk with my mentor on that, I did this year of infectious diseases research and we would talk and I, I would be talking about a cancer patient I saw in the wards. And, and he was like, and every time I would start talking, he was like, you're going to be an oncologist. And I was like, no, I really like, I, like, I re- I'm really excited about the research that we're doing. It's like, it's okay. Like, it's a, that's a part of life, right? Like understanding, <laughs> understanding what, what you're passionate about is, is important. Um, so yeah, I did my fellowship at Dana-Farber. I stayed uh, at Dana-Farber. During residency, I had started to work with some of the docs um, at the Farber um, and at the Brigham, actually. And I uh, was paired with Francisco Marti, who was an infectious diseases, immunocompromised infectious diseases researcher at the Brigham. Uh, and with Anne LaCase, uh, who is a lymph- <laughs> who's a lymphoma doc, who, who you may know from uh, also being with me on the big stage at the, at the plenary stage. It was really special to have her um, be the plenary, plenary discussant. But so we, we did this, re- you know, this research together. I did some lymphoma research, but then also I did an, a research project looking at, um, you know, this, this, kind of, this complication of, of patients uh, who undergo a cord blood allogeneic stem cell transplantation. Um, and I, my first research, my first first author research paper that I ever published was in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, Your first just, paper ever was in the NEJM. Yeah, yeah. Let me just cry because it is. <laughs> I, know. As a, I, I you know. I mean, my first I paper. I know. I think <laughs> it's it's kind of this impossibly high bar to set, right? I mean, it was it was it was a. You don't even know what you've achieved. You know, I, I had no concept of what that. I mean, I understood what it meant, but you still sure. don't don't know really. Um, so that was a you know. I, I feel like the rest of my career, I've, I've been, you know, it's, it was always it was all downhill. I think you've there. gotten a couple of them there as well. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not worried about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm kidding. But um, so so I had a really, I was able to do research, you know, uh, as a resident, which was really fun and special. Solidified my interest even more. I did my my fellowship uh, in Boston at Dana Farber and MGH. Uh, and worked with the the bone marrow transplant physicians and the lymphoma team. I, uh, Philippe Armand was my primary mentor, and um, you know I, I was really excited. It was right when kind of immunotherapy was coming of age, and and PD one blockade was was really exciting. Um, you know, making making a splash, and we were treating the first lymphoma patients with PD one blockade, and, and Philippe was a part of those studies, and and I and I it was I just it was phenomenal right to 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 be all we ever had was chemotherapy really for the most part and to be able to have patients respond to to an antibody that was it turns out to be have been very targeted for Hodgkin lymphoma at the time but I didn't we didn't totally um we you know we just were starting to understand that uh, was really was really neat and so uh, we worked together and started to write you know trials and and it was a really exciting time uh and my wife and I um, you know, had our first child when I was in fellowship and it was time for her to, she's an oceanography professor. She's far, far smarter than I am and cooler. And yeah, she's, she's really the, the star of the show, but she got, uh, she was, it was time for her to apply for a job. She was finishing up her postdoc and she got a job at USC here in the Los Angeles area. And we were able to defer the, the position for a while while they built her lab, but ultimately she had to come out here. And so we moved, I moved her out here and my four month old son, and I started flying back and forth every three months to visit them. Oh my and my God. heart, yeah, it was, my heart broke, and I was like a, a second year fellow. Um, 
my heart just broke more and more every time I was flying back to Boston. And I said, I, I, after three months, I, I was like, we were planning to do a whole year and a half of it. And I said, I can't do it. Um, and so that's when uh, ultimately I, I came to City of Hope. Uh, we, you know, I, I was able to essentially make it like an away year uh, with the ABIM. So I was still double board. You know, I, I got, I was, he man on boarded and it all worked out. I continued to do research with the folks at the Harbor and then actually combined that research with folks here at City of Hope. And that led to some of the first publications that I really had in, in you know, in, in lymphoma um, that were joint public, you know, joint projects between City of Hope and, and the Department. Uh, so I came to City of Hope and, and the rest is kind of history. Um, you know, this place has been extremely supportive of my career. Uh, all the people here, you know, I was a really eager beaver and, 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 and was excited to open immunotherapy clinical trials and, and do, um, you know, clinical research. And I was you know, really afforded every opportunity and, 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 you know, I got, obviously I was excited about immunotherapy and was able to open, you know, different trials in Hodgkin lymphoma and other non-Hodgkin lymphomas. And, um, I opened, I, I, at first I wanted to be, and this is, I guess, thinking about like lessons as a kind of coming through this whole, you know, this whole process of life. And I remember I, I said, I'm going to be the PD one guy. In lymphoma like i'm going to be a modality person i'm going to be this immunotherapy person not to say that that's not possible we have rt and other modalities where people really stem cell transplant where people are focused on a modality but you know it turns out so i had all these trials in non-hodgkin lymphomas t-cell lymphomas b-cell lymphomas looking at pd1 blockade and as now we know it doesn't really work all that well except for hodgkin and you know maybe some other subtypes right perimetacyl lymphoma and so I had to learn how to pivot, right? I said, okay, well, you know, I had built my, I thought I was going to build my career on this thing that really doesn't work for the most part, except for these very specific diseases. And so I realized it really became more about being a Hodgkin lymphoma expert as opposed to a PD-1 expert. And that ended up being a really important step in my career because I, from there on, it's just um, a lot of advances have come in Hodgkin lymphoma with all these, you know, with novel therapies and how to integrate them and how to move them earlier in the course of therapy. And, and even though the initial trials were, you know, were, were kind of already completing uh, by the time I was, I was coming into the field, I was able to look at combinations and earlier lines of therapy. And, and that's, that's really kind of how I uh, got my start. So. Was it um, because in the Brigham, <clears throat> in the Dana Farber, you worked with uh, and that's how you decided to do lymphoma because, uh, you know, your initial exposure in cancer was to a woman who was yeah. diagnosed with ovarian cancer. That's a, it's a great point. You know, I, the Brigham and Dana Farber, I, I think as residents, we rotate through the, the bone marrow transplant service. And so I, I, I early on, I, I developed an interest in hemolignancies malignancies during oncology fellowship. I actually thought about some solid tumor, you know, thinking of, I was like, actually really like the thoracic group at MGH and that the Farber is really strong. And so I thought about thoracic oncology too, because of the targeted therapies at the time, you know, but ultimately there was something special about lymphoma. The, the fact that there are so many different subtypes of lymphoma, I said, you know, this is, this is always going to be exciting. It's never, you know, there's never a dull moment, right? You're seeing a marginal lymphoma patient. You see a Hodgkin lymphoma patient. There's, you know, so many different subtypes of Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh, so that was exciting to me, being able to see patients across the age spectrum. So from the very youngest patients, right, with Hodgkin lymphoma to, you know, the, you know, patients who are you know middle-aged or even older, I thought that was actually really neat to be able to have a variety of types of patients that you see. And then truly, like, I, 
because I loved that longitudinal experience that I had with this patient with ovarian cancer, I understood that like lymphoma, the reality is we, we do cure our patients a good chunk of the time with aggressive lymphoma and Hodgkin lymphoma especially. So that it really appealed to me. Um, I understood that as a academic lymphoma doctor, I was going to be seeing patients with very relapsed and refractory disease. And so there was that balance between, you know, you have the worst lymphoma is just as bad as any pancreatic cancer, right? But to see that spectrum um, really appealed to me. Also at the time, you know, ibrutinib, brintuximab, and all these drugs were the very first kind of initial novel therapies aside from rituximab were, were, were starting to come up, you know, were, were really coming online. Um, and, and I, I just, lymphoma to me seemed like the space where there was, there were, there were so many trials opening, there were different targets, there were different agents. And I, it seemed like a place where I could really um, do exciting research quickly. And Alex, something happened in 2019. Uh, we're taping this in 2023, four years ago, something happened that, um, was probably life-changing to you. Do you want to take us through what happened to you? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of, you know, four years later, the lights in my office are, are on and, and they're very bright. I have a big, huge, bright light, three bright lights on, just to make sure that I'm, there's not too much shading on my face. And and that's notable because back in 2019, I uh, I had a head injury actually when I was skiing. Uh, I was just unfortunate. It was a freak thing. Somebody cut in front of me. I was, I was cutting out of the way. And when I went to stop, uh, there was an ice wall uh, on the, on this kind of part of this run. And I hit my head on the ice wall and and I, I hit my head and I wasn't like, I mean, it wasn't such a Brad Bain injury that I needed to get rushed to the hospital or anything like that, but I, I definitely was concussed. And I, I had had a couple of concussions earlier on uh, when I was playing sports earlier in my life. And so I knew what it felt like. Um, but what I didn't do was take any time to break and let myself heal. Uh, and I just pushed right through. Um, I went back to, I, I went back home you know, from skiing, I went to work the next day. I uh, gave three talks, I think that week, I flew to Italy to give a talk. Uh, jet lag's not, it's definitely not good for uh, a concussion. <laughs> um, it's important to get sleep and to rest. Um, and so it was a really um, important thing that happened to me um, because I had all of my life just operated under the assumption or the you know, the guiding principle that if I just work hard enough, I can make anything happen, right? You tell me I can't do it. I'm going to show you, I'm going to make, I'm going to work hard enough to make it happen. And that doesn't work when you're, when you're, when you have a concussion or, or, or bad concussion. So I kept on pushing through. I never fully healed. Things kept on happening. You know, I would feel a little better than I would do something to aggravate the symptoms. And, you know, ultimately by not letting myself heal, um, you know, I, I was doing it. I was actually doing an interview with, with these with really bright lights, and um, I still wasn't totally healed yet. And I felt fine that day. But I, I was in front of the bright lights for maybe like two hours or an hour and a half. And the next day, I woke up, and it was like I couldn't, um, I couldn't deal with light. I was, I woke up and I like opened my eyes, and it was, you know, bright sunny morning, and I was just, I, I just like I had to put the shades down and sit in a dark room. Um, and sounds were really disturbing at the time. Like I, you know, it's almost like basically I had, I had overloaded my senses by, by, by being concussed and not really resting. Um, you know, our brains recognize threats and sounds and lights at that 
moment in time were a threat. And I think I just, I never, I didn't let myself heal and more or less develop this, you know, a, a kind of a sensitization to, to lights and sounds, which is pretty common after, you know, like a post-concussive syndrome. So um, I, I had to start cutting down my clinic. Um, I, you know, I, I, I was really starting to withdraw. I was in my room in the dark, you know, for a day, you know, I would, I would kind of rest most of the day. And, and I started, I started trying to see doctors and figure out what was going on. Um, but to make a long story short, within the span of a few short weeks, I, I, I had to completely uh, more or less stop working. Um, I had to sign over all of my research trials to, oh, to make sure that oh, there was cool. coverage. You know, I, obviously the, re, you know, people, people, trials need coverage. There needs to be a, you know, somebody, an investigator responsible. The patients needed doctors. My nurse practitioner is incredible. And she was seeing my patients and running my clinic for me for weeks. And after a while, she just said, listen, I, I need, we need to, we need to figure this out. Um, so I went on medical leave for a few months. Um, and that was really hard. I had two talks at ASH that year and I kept on that, thinking. That, that was still 2019, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This was the end of, this is like December, 2019. Now. Mm-hmm. I kept on thinking I was going to make it to ASH. I was like, it's okay. I'm going to rest. I'm going to get better. I'm going to do it. Um, and I, I couldn't. And it, it was right in the December when I finally had to pull the trigger. And I, I, I asked my colleagues to cover for me and give the talks. And I, I hit absolute rock bottom. Like I, I couldn't play with my kids. I had to be in like, I was wearing like headphones and earplugs inside my own house. I couldn't, couldn't really go outside comfortably. Um, it was, I couldn't listen to music. I couldn't, it was, it, it was completely devastating. Wow. Oh, um, I was, I mean, like, I, honestly, I, it's probably like oversharing, but you know, it feels like on zoom and I don't, I don't see all the, the many people, you're all of your followers out there listening, but I, I was like, Clint, I was like depressed absolutely depressed um and i didn't know what to do i didn't know if i'd be able to work again i didn't know if i'd be able to be a doctor again i didn't know if i'd be able to provide for my family or be a dad the way i would want it to be you know the way i had been or wanted to be it was really gutting you know i was really i was really struggling um and then did you see somebody did you see yeah uh... I, saw, I saw everybody <laughs> no like uh like uh you know psychologist psychiatrist yeah. Yeah, I saw, I actually saw, I saw a, saw a psychiatrist. I saw a therapist. Uh, I saw multiple types of therapists. <laughs> I saw, uh, I, of course, I was seeing neurologists. I was seeing occupational therapy. I was seeing physical therapy to look, to work on like, you know, kind of, uh, I, you know, pupil accommodation, all these different things that, you know, when you have a concussion, when you're dealing with, with light, I saw every specialist I could because I, I didn't, I, I just, I didn't feel like I could give up. And they're telling me, you know, sometimes people in life just never recover from this. And they just, this is the way things are. And I just, I just couldn't accept that. I couldn't accept that that was the way it was going to be. So I, um, the main thing that changed was that I just accepted that I, I, I needed help and that I couldn't, to be honest with you, what probably happened after a while was my brain had probably healed but I had more or less developed a phobia or like PTSD or like an anxiety around lights and sounds. And I, um, so I had to accept that, that part of this started to become my own. It wasn't just the organic brain injury. Right. But it was, it was kind of the psychology around it. So I, you know, I, I was on meds for the, the, the head injury and all the, you know, I went, I was going to multiple different types of therapists. I had to do cognitive behavioral therapy to kind of do exposure therapy to all these, you know, lights and sounds. And anyways, I, I ultimately just, once I accepted help, 
and 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 kind of this like resolve myself to to do the hard work of getting better the slow and, and long way, um, I did start to feel better. Uh, and of course, I was just about, you know, it took me a couple, you know, a couple months of really kind of exposure therapy. I would literally, I'd come to clinic, I'd come to work and I would come to clinic and just sit under the fluorescent lights and read a magazine, <laughs> like a travel magazine. Um, and they were all the patients, you know, all the, the nurses were like, oh, we're so excited to see you. Are you back at work? And I was like, I would, I just needed to get used to the environment again. So that when I came back to work, I wasn't, you know, worried about the lights and the sounds. It was just like, I could be present for patients. Um, so it took a couple months. I got better enough to come back to work. And at that point I was like, Hey, you know what, if I can just make a living again and see patients, that would be great. Uh, and I came back to work on March 1st and within two weeks, the COVID pandemic started. Um, <laughs> Oh, and, uh, you know, the rest of that is story is, is history. But, you know, thankfully, I was I was ready to come back. And it took a few months to ramp to kind of work my way back to doing research and everything. But, um, yeah, I, I, I was able to do that. And as I did more and more and really kind of felt back to myself, um, I would actually have occasional times where things didn't go well. Right. I would have a bad day. I wouldn't feel well. I'd be headachey or whatever it is. And that, you know, every little blip like that, every setback, sometimes a setback would last three days. Sometimes I actually, since I've told that story, you know, since I was interviewed for the ASCO Post, I actually, right before Ash this last year, for a week or two, I actually was playing soccer with the kids and I headed, I headed a ball and I, and it really threw me off. Probably was just panic about having hit my head, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I can't, I couldn't separate organic, like something that was real, real, Versus just, um, you know, kind of psychological. Um, so even before Ash for a couple of weeks there, I was a little shaky. Um, but every little blip and every setback that you can kind of get come that I was able to come back from made me more and more and more and more resilient. And, you know, I think there are so many lessons, obviously, like life is just one, you know, string of lessons at, at the end of the day. But, you know, this idea that so I, I always interpreted strength as never getting knocked down, right? I think that's like, you know, you, you interpret strength as, you know, you think about physical strength and we, we maybe underestimate sometimes the ability to, you know, it's like actually getting knocked down is going to happen to everybody. It's really getting back up. That is the strength, right? Like the, you know, getting knocked down and, and just finding a way to get back up and put the pieces together. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be pretty. Sometimes it's, it, you know, and it's really hard, um, but everybody's going to get knocked down. And, and that's, that that realization wouldn't have come without all everything that I had gone through. Now I wish I hadn't had to go through it to to learn those lessons. Um, but I didn't have good coping mechanisms. I was kind of a one trick pony. I had, I had always just worked hard and got, you know just gritted through and got you know gritted my teeth and and gotten through everything. But that doesn't work when you have a concussion, you have a brain injury, and you need to rest. So I learned other ways to cope and 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 be resilient, and that ended up being really important. And I'm still learning those lessons. Did, did this affect how you conduct your day-to-day -day work, how you deal with family, with patients? I mean, I, I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what you're describing is like a life-altering event to me. Yeah, it does. I, I am, I think, I'm a much more, I'm a much better physician because of it. I'm a much more empathetic physician. It's not to say that I wasn't empathetic before. Actually, I feel like I, I actually was pretty, it was quite empathetic before. But it's helped me understand, like, for example, 
to bring it back to Hodgkin lymphoma. You know, these patients are young and they're going through this traumatic, this incredibly traumatic experience, a life threatening, you know, they're facing their mortality at an age where you're probably not ready to do that yet. And, but you, you know, but you get this diagnosis, you go through treatment and at the end, you know, we get this PET scan and, you know, 80, 90% of the time we say, congratulations, the PET scan looks great. I'll see you in three months. You know, go back to your, go back to school, go back to your job, go, you know, good luck. And that transition time is such a difficult time for people because they've been going through this whole experience. And now all of a sudden that readjustment back to normal life after having gone through all that is tough. There's scan anxiety. There's, you know, every physical symptom that they feel is they're, you know, they, they're convinced it's recurrence, right? You know, and that makes sense given what they've gone through. Yeah. That in a very different way, because I, I think thankfully I didn't have cancer, but, you know, I, I can relate to it because every time I saw a light or hit a head or heard a loud voice or had a headache or whatever it is, I, I was convinced I was, you know, I was going back to being in a dark room again for the rest of my life. So, so it's, I mean, it's a, again, a really different on a different scale completely. I what I had wasn't life threatening, but um, but it was life altering to to recognize, you know, to to see that, and then I don't, I would never minimize the experience of patients, but I, I can I can understand that the that psychological challenge, and and I can empathize with it a, a lot more. Um, you know, it has, an, I'm, I try to be better about getting sleep. Like we were just at ASCO, and you know, it, sometimes it's it's you just you know it's it's fun to see people and 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 you know to to go out to you know to go to meetings and 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 that hustle and bustle is great but sometimes you just got i just like i need to go home and go to sleep i need to make sure i can rest um you know maybe i'm a little more prone to 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 having a tough time with sleep um you know or, or lack of sleep i should say you know but overall i think i do try to be really balanced as actually i should say i don't think there's any such thing as work balance work-life balance like basically yeah, it doesn't exist, right? So, but I but what I try to do is be is make a make time and and prioritize the things that I really care about. And you know, last year, for example, I really wanted to be there after the pandemic. I started coaching my kids baseball. I never thought I never had the time to do it before, and I really wanted to be there for them. And I loved doing it, and it was a really special time for us. So I I turned down a lot of talk invitations and travel invitations because I really wanted to be present. And if I, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. And, um, you know, I don't, hopefully it hasn't hurt me professionally, but, um, the, the, I don't, I don't think I would have done that before. I wouldn't have said, you know what, I'm going to turn down this professional opportunity to make sure I can be home to coach a team of nine-year-olds, um, that I don't think I would have done that before, but I'm so glad that I did it and that I, you know, and, and that I have a, a you know, I, I have this relationship with, I was able to share that with my, with my boys as a result. Because frankly, I mean, the academic culture that we are in, it's about, you know, getting seen, be known. So, I mean, it's just the way it is. And uh, I'm glad that you're able to do this balance. I agree with you. There is really no work-life balance. But you returned to this ASCO as a champ, this <laughs> ASCO 2023. Hey, don't be humble on me. And I know you're one of the nicest people I know. And you have a lot of humility but it's okay. You can brag and you deserve it. Not a lot of people get on the podium in front of 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 people. So you've earned it. Brag a little bit. Uh, um, how tough was it, uh, Alex? And uh, you know, We'll talk about the trial very briefly because a lot of folks sure. probably know about it. But how tough was it? Like, uh, Take us through 
uh, you came up with the idea uh, and then it became an intergroup study and like you, take us maybe briefly through the process and did you know what did it feel like opening this email or whatever like you know it's an academy award uh, calling you at 5 a.m you won the oscars right so i will say a lot of the credit for the initial conception of, of this particular trial um belongs with uh, a couple of folks so i mean i think there was there was starting to be data about pd1 blockade in the frontline setting combined with chemotherapy i think there started to be you know, to become the idea for this opportunity to introduce PD-1 blockade as part of frontline therapy. You know, Brintuximab, Vidotin, AVD had been approved based on the Echelon 1 trial and advanced age Hodgkin lymphoma. But admittedly, the bar seemed high. You know, we still had Rathal. There was still kind of discussion and a lot of controversy about what we should be using, whether we should be using the old standard ABVD or Brentoxamabid and AVD. And so it was a little bit of a tricky landscape, right? PD-1 blockade looks great, but the bar is really high. And then we're still not even clear on what we use. And so, um, you know, Jonathan Friedberg is the chair of the lymphoma committee at SWOG. Um, you know, Kara Kelly, who was the chair of the Hodgkin lymphoma committee for children's oncology group at the time. Now, if you, uh, you know, it was, it was this, as this opportunity became apparent, you know, they they really you know started to conceive we started to conceive of this idea that um you know maybe we could take this bold stroke test pd1 in the frontline setting and harmonize the treatment of of pediatric and adult patients which has been different for decades and you know let's this is part of kind of the the comeback of the cooperative groups right like the, maybe there wasn't as much going on in the cooperative groups for a little while in lymphoma but but this was part of this upswing of trials um that we've had and this was a, a, a was a bold stroke but it was we looked you know we built consensus we got everybody you know we got import you know people lymphoma docs from around the country the heads of the the, the lymphoma committees uh ctep uh, you, know, you know bms obviously in this case and we got everybody together and we said, you know, thought leaders, and we said, let's 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 build consensus around what this trial is going to look like. And there was a lot of discussion about whether the the, the control arm should be ABVD or Brintuximabidot and AVD. And think, thankfully, we chose Brintuximabidot and AVD in the end. I was just going to tell yeah. you, actually, there are folks that I know that criticized back 100%. in the day. <laughs> 100%. I, and, I, and, I, and I think back then, because there was still that controversy, but of course, and then there ends up being an overall, overall survival benefit with Brentuximab, obviously. So, so we, we were, you know, uh, you make your luck, but I think we were lucky there that we chose the right uh, control arm. But I think, you know, the point at the time was, listen, if we choose, like, if we go head to head with the therapy that has the best progression-free survival that we know, let's leaving aside be a cop for a second. Um, but if we go with the, the, the strongest, you know, the regimen with the best disease control, you can't, it's hard to be criticized for that, right? You, 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 you evade this problem of having a, you know, the chlorambucil open atuzumab uh, control arm <laughs> that, that was used in CLL for a long time, right? And so I, I thought it was a really sound argument. It also made the trial really simple, just Nevo AVD versus BVAVD. We're not gonna pet adapt therapy. If we had done ABVD, we would have had that pet adapted therapy. It would have been really complicated. Um, this was simple. It's just one-to-one -one randomization, which novel drug is the best immunotherapy part, you know, the best partner for, for chemotherapy. Um, so, so that was the kind of the, the, the way that all went down at the beginning. And, um, I have to say 
if this the trial, we got it off the ground extremely quickly. We were way ahead of the the, the usual kind of NCI deadlines. We got it. We you know we we wrote the protocol. We, there was a, a lot of excitement about doing this trial. Uh, we had a lot of help from people in all the different cooperative groups. We we built a really great study team that worked really well together. We were really collaborative. It, you know, on, in my view, I think this is in in, in the view of, of others. This is kind of a, a a model for how we can do um, AYA research or just generally for how to do cooperative group research. Because from the very beginning, we said, you know what, we, we were collaborative. You guys are going to lead the, the patient report outcomes. That was you know COG. You guys can lead the the imaging outcomes. You guys will lead the cost effectiveness analysis. You guys will do, you know, it was like, let's let's all work, do this together. Everybody can have a stake um, and incentive to really be engaged in this process. Um, because at the end of the day, that matters. If you know academically you're gonna have credit, um, and you have a and you have a, a seat at the table from the beginning to really design and 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 kind of conduct the trial, that that build, you know, that's a real team. And well, I think, to my knowledge, this is the largest, and correct me if I'm wrong, it is the largest prospective randomized control trial in the history of Hodgkin lymphoma conducted in the United States. Is that accurate? I think in the cooperative groups, I'm trying to remember how many patients were enrolled on uh, Echelon. Um, it's probably close to Echelon. You, you, you had like close to 1,000 in this one, right? Like something. Yeah, we're 900, we enrolled 994, but for sure in the cooperative groups. This is the biggest Hodgkin lymphoma trial in the yeah. cooperative groups, so yeah. for sure. Um, so... And you yeah, change so, the standard of care. Right. So, you know, so in the end, we we enrolled a full year ahead of schedule because there was, it was so simple. It was so, there was so much excitement about the trial in the community. They enrolled extremely well. And that's huge because that allowed this trial to really be representative, right? There, there were centers all around the country enrolling to this trial. I mean, hundreds of sites. And, um, and so that was, that was really huge. Uh, we enrolled a full year ahead of schedule. And, you know, at the, so we built in these interim analyses to make sure we weren't harming people, um, you know, with this experimental approach. And actually at the second interim analysis, uh, the DSMC, you know, the statisticians report, you know, presented the data, you know, sent the data, the report to the, to the committee. And, and they said there was, there was such an imbalance in events. Um, you know, it actually, they, there was a very conservative statistical boundary that was set um, to show superiority at, at the fit, at the second term analysis, this was just fifty percent of the total PFS events, and and it blew past that. Um, it was floridly positive. It was a hazard ratio of zero point four eight, a fifty two percent reduction in disease progression or death, and you know it was incredible. So I got this. So first, it was like the call that we had met the primary endpoint, and that was, I mean, it was, it was just who, who called you. Uh, well, it was like the, the stat the stats team spoke with with Dr. Friedberg and I, with Jonathan and I, um, and it was like almost like you know, nobody could believe it. We were just it couldn't I couldn't have imagined it would it would happen this early. I mean, we we, we were always like, well, you know, gosh, I, you know, we we expect it's a positive trial. We we hope it's a positive trial. We designed this because we 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 had equipoise and we felt like this could be a positive trial. But I mean, for it to happen this early was really. Um, a surprise but a pleasant a welcome one um so you know i think in the end especially this week it has really crystallized for me what we did i think to be able to cure more patients with cancer is always a, a privilege that we do in clinical research uh hopefully we're curing more patients um but not only to improve disease outcomes significant like by by, by a, a good amount we were able to reduce 
acute toxicities. So, you know, brentuximabido and ABD has, you know, it's, we got to use growth factor, there's more peripheral neuropathy, there's more infections in febrile neutropenia and sepsis, and, and the Nevo ABD arm was, was better tolerated. So to improve outcomes, improve acute toxicity. And then I think for me, one of the most important parts of this trial is that, you know, pediatric patients historically have received radiation, even with advanced stage disease, right? So stage three or four disease, they're still getting radiation to residually pet active, you know, FTG active sites at the end of treatment to bulky disease, uh, to slow, you know, kind of pet positive at interim, you know, there was all these different criteria. Um, but more than about 55%, 55 to 60% of patients would get radiation. And on this trial, less than 1% of patients got radiation. Um, so that that was really, uh, you know, to, to potentially reduce late effects, late toxic effects in this disease that disproportionately affects young people, for me, was was on, was one of the most exciting things. And it's like, I, I, it, it kind of dawned on me when I was talking with people about it and I was able to present the data. I, I don't, it's like, that's that's all you could hope for in a trial, right? To To, to have that, that trifecta of improved outcomes, reduced yeah. acute toxicity. And I just, it kind of, it's when you, it's had, like, you had the double digit percentage points of uh, folks uh, over the age of 60, which is elderly yeah. Hodgkin, which is really important. Yeah. So um, uh, you got an email about the plenary? Like how did you learn about <laughs> plenary? And did you have to take a double take when you got the email? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So based on the timing um, of when this all came about, um, it was... So this all came around in, I guess it was February or, you know, yeah, it was like mid, mid, late February or March. And based on the time that this read out, we couldn't, it was not, it wouldn't have been appropriate to wait until ASH. You know what I mean? This is a federally funded study. We got to get this information out there. It's important to, for patients. We have to, to kind of inform the field. And so ASCO was, was the clear opportunity and, um, you know, we, we hoped it, it might be a, a have that impact, but you never know. And and you know there haven't there hasn't been a lymphoma plenary at Ash. Uh, excuse me at at, at Asco. I think the last one might have been rituximab, <laughs> rituximab versus uh, you know RCHOP versus CHOP. I think for DLBCL, you know, twenty years ago. So um, so this was really special uh, to be able to be on the stage with incredibly you know, fantastic like just incredible practice changing solid tumor oncology research but to share the stage um with them was really exciting and to bring you know actually i felt i don't know how you felt about it but at asco this year i felt like there was a ton of lymphoma research the lymphoma session today was exciting it was really impactful research there were many folks um you know there were many lymphoma specialists there and, and the poster session was exciting i actually thought the presence um the the, the impact and and footprint of lymphoma at this meeting uh, was really spectacular, actually. So you've given a lot of talks, and I want to I wanna do a time check. I know you have a hard stop, so I'm going to be very respectful of that, although I can talk to you for hours. <laughs> but uh, you've given a lot of talks, uh, all of that stuff. You've written a lot. Were you at least a little bit nervous going on the stage with the plenary session, or were you like, hey, I can, hey, I don't really, you know, I'm, I'm it? <laughs> you know, I think it, I wouldn't be human if I didn't say that probably my heart rate was going a little faster. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, there, it's, I think it's normal to have some nerves, but you know, I, something, I, I don't know, people, maybe uh, if other people might resonate, this might resonate with other people, or maybe other people have experienced this, but sometimes when you, you know, it's like, I, 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 I knew what I was going to present and I knew it cold and 
sometimes like in the moment, it just like everything else, just, it, it just, there was just this, this calm that just, that just happened. And I just, it was like, you go into a trance almost. And I was just like, I, I just, I just, it was like the movie old school where <laughs> Will Ferrell gives this speech and it was like, you know, he, he's like, you know, at the end he just wakes up. I mean, I'm joking, but, but it just, I don't know something just there, there, it, it was just very um, exciting, but I wasn't panicked. I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have this huge adrenaline kicking. Like actually when I, I presented the plenary uh, talk for Zuma seven at, at Ash um, back in 2021, I guess. Um, and I was a lot more nervous that day than I was yes than, than I was on Sunday. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I've been on I've been on a big stage before, never presenting my own research. But something, yeah, it was it was I was well, calm. You, you were very calm, and the presentation was excellent and great. How special was that Anne Lacase, yeah. who was the lymphoma specialist you worked with at the Farber, was the discussant of your abstract? Was it? I wonder actually, was that by chance or uh, or was it like <laughs> was it matched because she worked with you? Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't think it was, um, necessarily because, because we had worked together before, but I think she had been involved with the ASCO, you know, program committee, but, um, it was, it was really special one that probably had a calming effect because, you know, we know each other. Well, we were, you know, in the back, you know, green room and I was showing her pictures of my kids who she's, you know, who she met when they were, you know, four months old and I was carrying them into like the fellow's room as a, as a fellow. Um, but you know, we were able to just catch up as old colleagues and, and friends. Um, but it was really special. I think it, it just felt like things had come full circle. Um, you know, I, I had had this journey uh, with some pretty significant bumps along the way. But at the end of the day, there's this overall trajectory, right? And I'm, I've been fortunate and worked hard, but made sure, you know, that that trajectory has been a really, um, you know, positive one for me. And to have an who was there, you know, kind of early on in, in my journey and played a role and was a mentor for me. Uh, and I did, we did research together and, um, you know, she was so supportive of me early on in my career to have her kind of be with me on the stage. Um, that, and that day was really special. And um, yeah, that's something that, you know, you don't forget those days in your life. They don't come that often. So it was really special. Alex, congratulations on everything you've done, everything you've accomplished. Um, I can honestly say that, um, uh, I mean, again, everybody um, uh, cheers for you and very happy for you. And uh, uh, my plea for you to get on social media, actually, is just because I think a lot of people would love to hear from you, honestly. I think that you can bring a lot of, um, you know, not only the science, but uh, you're an inspiration to a lot of people. Um, and uh, I'm a little bit older than you, but you inspire me. And uh, truly, and I speak with a lot of people, and the fact that uh, you have agreed to come on my podcast means a lot to me. Uh, it's uh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll think about it. I don't know. I, I, I feel like my, my, the balance that's, there's no such thing as balance, but my balance might, 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 might even be harder if I join Twitter. <laughs> let's, let's, let's think about it before Ash. Monty and I will convince you. Okay. But, all right. Um, well, well I, I will agree to, to, to consider and to talk about it more. <laughs> I like that. Now you're talking like a politician, Alex Herrera, <laughs> the one, the only, the myth, the legend on healthcare unfiltered. Very grateful you came on the show and thank you so much for, being the human being that you are before the researcher and before the physician.
Thank you, Chad. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you, folks, for listening to Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate your loyalty. I appreciate you subscribing to the show, rating the show, and letting me know how I am doing. Don't forget to visit my website, shadinabhan.com. Don't forget to refer your friends and colleagues to the show. And don't forget to check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. It does talk about lymphoma and the association with Roundup. I really appreciate and I want to thank Dr. Alex Herrera for being on today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the story behind the story. And I would like to learn from you what you thought about today's podcast. Before I let you go, I find it fitting to share with you a quote from Theodore Roosevelt about one of my favorite things that he's ever said decades ago, the man in the arena. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. And it goes without saying that Alex is the man in the arena. Until next time, take care.